Oops. Got the right bits of paper in front of me. The notices might be interesting, but uh, we've gone through them once already, so I'll have my notes instead. Let's just pray before we start. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come here this morning. Something that sometimes we take for granted, sometimes it's something that we even resent. But Lord, it's a gift that you've given us. We think of so many around the world today who can't be in this situation and would love to. So today as we come before your word, we pray that you will enter our hearts and that you will touch us. You will help me to bring forth your meaning in the scriptures today. In Jesus' name, amen. So wonder, have you met one of those really, really annoying people? You know, you have this great, you've been on holiday um, or something's happened at home or at work or something and uh, you've got this amazing story you want to tell somebody and you tell it and everyone thinks, ah, good. And then someone comes up with the better story. You know, you had, you had something good, they had something great. You went to... You went to the Norfolk Broadland holiday and they went to Spain. You went to Spain, they went to uh, Las Vegas or something, you know? And it, ah. And they top your story with something that they've done. It makes you sound pretty mundane. If you don't know what I mean, it's not happened to you. Just watch this for a minute. Right, very possible. Not bad at all. All right. Nothing like a good glass of Chateau de Chateau. Eh, Dessart? Ah, you're right there, Obadiah, did right. Who'd have thought, 40 years ago, that we'd be sitting here drinking Chateau de Chateau? Ah, I would have been glad of the price of a cup of tea then. Ah, a cup of cold tea. Ah, without milk or sugar. Aye. Or tea. <laughs> and out of a cracked cup at that. Aye. We never had a cup. We used to drink out of a rolled up newspaper. <laughs> the best we could manage was to suck on a piece of damp cloth. Uh, but you know, I often think we were happier then, although we were poor. Because we were poor. Aye. My old dad said to me, he said, money won't bring you happiness, son. He was right. Aye. I was happier then, I had nothing. Aye. We used to live in a tiny, tumble-down old house with great holes in roof. House? You're lucky to have a house. We used to live in one room, 26 of us. All there. No furniture. Half the floor was missing, and we were all huddled in one corner for fear of falling. <laughs> room? You were lucky to have a room. We used to have to live in corridor. Corridor? Oh, I used to dream of living in a corridor. That would have been a palace to us. <laughs> we used to live in a water tank on rubbish tip. Ah, every morning we'd be woke up by having a load of rotting fish dumped on us. House. Ah. Well, when I said house, I mean to our only hole in ground covered by a couple of foot of torn canvas. But it were house to us. Oh, well, we were evicted from our hole in the ground. We had to go and live in the lake. Hey, hey, you were lucky to have a lake. There are over 150 of us living in a small shoebox in Middle Road. Cardboard box? Right. Ah, oh, you were lucky. <laughs> we lived for three months in a rolled-up newspaper in a septic tank. Right. Every morning we'd have to get up at six, clean out rolled-up newspaper, eat a crust of stale bread, then we'd have to work 14 hours at mill, day in, day out, for sixpence a week. Aye, and then when we'd come home, Dad would thrash us to sleep with his belt. Luxury. 
We used to get up at three, clean the lake, eat a handful of hot gravel, then we'd work in mill for 20 hours for twopence a month, then we'd come home and Dad would beat us about the end neck with a broken bottle, if we were lucky. Paradise. We had it tough. I used to have to get out at shoebox at midnight, lit road clean, eat a couple of bits of cold gravel, work 23 hours a day at mill for a penny every four years, and when we, and when we got home, Dad used to slice us in half with a bread knife. Right. <clears throat> we used to get up in morning at half past ten at night, half an hour, half an hour before we'd gone to bed, eat a lump of poison, Work 29 hours a day at mill for eight year lifetime. Come home and each night Dad would strangle us and dance about on our graves. Aye, and you try and tell that to the young people of today. <laughs> Will they believe you? No! no. Yes, you might be wondering what that's got to do with Psalm 26. But, uh, <laughs> When the slides come up, you'll, you'll realise. Well, maybe you will. There's something in the heart of man, isn't there, that likes to get one up on people. Sometimes we like to let people think maybe we're not upset if they think we're actually better than we really are. And I, I must admit, when I, I wasn't particularly familiar with Psalm 26, I'd read Psalm 26, uh, but it wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't something I was familiar with. And when I came to study it, to look for today's um, talk, I must admit, I read it, for, I sort of came away with this, from the first reading of it, with this impression that, well, that's what David's doing here. He's reading his bragging rights. He was better about these evildoers that he was talking about, and he was boasting about it somehow. And it took me a while to really see what was going on. And I hope together this morning we'll see, really, actually, David's doing something else entirely. So before we carry on, let's just read the psalm together. Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. Trust of the Lord and falter. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind. For I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. I don't sit with the deceitful, nor do I associate with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers, and I refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling all of all of your wonderful deeds. Lord, I love the house where you live, the place where your glory dwells. Don't take away my soul along with the sinners, my life with those who are bloodthirsty, in whose hands are wicked schemes and whose right hand are full of bribes. I lead a blameless life. Deliver me and be merciful to me. My feet stand on level ground. In the great congregation, I will praise the Lord. We want to look at three things when we go through this psalm this morning. First thing we want to look at is David's record. First of all, we look at David's record as he tells God about who he is. The next thing we want to look at is David's evidence. The next few verses. Really, when you look at the account of David's life in, in Samuel, in the book of Samuel and so on, 
David's not a braggart at all. Really, when you look elsewhere, he's humble. So what evidence has David got for what he's saying? And then finally, we're going to look at David's delight, the last half of the, the text, the, the psalm. David's got a record, he's got evidence, and he shows his delight. So let's, what is David's record? David's writing in this psalm from a position of weakness. And we find that a lot in David's psalm. He often tells how he's really in need of vindication from God. He needs to be cleared. He needs to be cleared of his guilt. He needs to be cleared of accusation. It's not explicitly stated in this text, but the implication is that David is falsely accused of wrongdoing at the time he was writing the psalm. And if we look at David's life, we find recorded examples, of, several recorded examples of false accusations being levelled at him. Particularly intense episode occurred when David was accused of plotting as a young man against King Saul. And David vehemently denied it. He was honourable. He was honest. He followed Saul as his king and he had no intentions of deposing him until God saw the fit time to depose him himself. He served his king. Yet, nevertheless, people saw him as a better man than Saul and wanted him to be king, and jealous people accused him of plotting. You can read the, Samuel, the psalm, the psalm, story yourself in 1 Samuel 24. Caves of Ein Gedi, the crags of the wild goat, where he hid out in refuge from those that were trying to kill him in revenge for this so-called plot that he'd never taken out against King Saul. Those were historical events that happened to, in a real time, 3,000 years ago, to real people. And that's perhaps one instance of one thing that was on his mind when he wrote this psalm. Certainly, it demonstrates the kind of situation he faced. So David turns to the Lord to be cleared of accusations against him, against his character. He turns to the Lord to be proved right. And he turns to the Lord asking to be proved right because as it says in verse 1, actually David has led a blameless life. Another translation it says, he walks, he walked in integrity. Now just to be clear, integrity in this context is not the same thing as sinlessness. Integrity is a disposition to be honest. It's a commitment to doing the right thing. So David is saying he's walked in integrity. He's lived honestly before the Lord. He's not a hypocrite. He doesn't say one thing and then do something else. What he said he would do, he sought to actually do to the best of his ability. His yes meant yes, and his no meant no. Don't even hate it when you meet someone or have to deal with someone who's got no integrity. They say, oh yes, we'll do it, and then they don't turn up to let you down. How frustrating and irritating. But David is never like that. He's no actor. He doesn't pretend. There's an honesty in David, even in confessing his sin. Even though he may not have done it immediately when Nathan confronted him about Bathsheba and his sin with her and the murder he committed, he did confess it. And when he was asked to, he walked in integrity with that point. He didn't try and bluff it out and deny it and put it on someone else. 
As king, he could have got away with whatever he wanted to get away with. But he tore his hair and he confessed his sin. His integrity is in his repentance. His trusting in the Lord is his faith. So you have faith and repentance characterized in the life of David. On the basis of his faith and his repentance, on the basis of his conversion, we perhaps could use that terminology, he appeals to God for vindication. That's David's record. But in order to bolster his case, to bolster the request for vindication, he calls on a witness. And the witness he calls on is the Lord. The reason David calls on the Lord to be his witness is because he's talking of matters that are of the heart. Integrity, trusting in the Lord, those aren't things that aren't necessarily visible to other people. These are things that exist only inside him. No one else can see them. No one can determine whether David really has trusted in the Lord. Only the Lord knows. So the best person, the best a person could say is that it appears that David's trusting in the Lord. But for David to make his case, he has to appeal to the Lord directly, who knows his heart, who knows the minds of men, and who isn't fooled by clever words. So he appeals to the Lord that he'd look into his heart that he'd prove David, that he would test his heart and his mind. He calls on the Lord to be a character witness. So why does David trust himself to this Lord? If God knows it all, why would he entrust himself to this all-knowing God who sees the heart and the mind of men? Verse 3, verse 3 of the passage tells us he could trust himself to the Lord because of the Lord's unfailing love. Because he's walking in faithfulness, he has hope. He lives in the shadow of God's faithfulness. God's unfailing love is an important teaching. In that throughout the Bible, God's unfailing love is unchanging character. It's unremitting love, whatever. It's an important teaching. It's spoken time after time after time again. From Genesis right through to Revelation. Here in the Psalms, we see that in the heart of David, in the mind of David, this steadfast love, this unfailing love, is something that is of huge significance to us. Over the last few years, we've been going through the Psalms in the summer. We're up to 26 today, as you've noticed. And out of these 26 Psalms that we've looked at so far over the last two or three years, eight of them refer to the unfailing, the, un the steadfast love of God explicitly. They mention it verbally. Psalm 5, Psalm 6, Psalm 13, 17, 18, 21, 25, and now 26. It's a theme that's close to David's mind because he's seen how God deals with his people. Right from the beginning, through the exile, through the exodus, right up to the conquest of the promised land and the anointing of David himself. When Cain murdered Abel, God provided Seth. When Israel cried out in a temper tantrum for meat in the wilderness, God gave them quail. When Israel was occupying the promised land and took up the traditions and habits of the Canaanites and worshipped Baals and Ashtoreths and other gods, God gave Israel, nevertheless, righteous defenders like Gideon and Deborah. 
And all of these are shadows, little moments, little insights into the full manifestation of God's steadfast, unfailing love. When we sin, when we do what is wrong, God, in his steadfast love, has provided us with his Son as a substitute. Here in the face of a false accusation, David turns to God and he asks God to clear his name because, because I live in the shadow of your, unsteadfast, your steadfast love. Because through your steadfast love, I am able to actually walk before you despite my character. David gives some evidence in addition to the character witness of God in his life. He gives some evidence to back that up. Some evidence to how he's different to the ones that are accusing him. And so we want to see that in verses 4 and 5. David goes beyond asking God to look at his heart and he points to some external evidence that supports what his inside, his internal feelings are. And establish beyond reasonable doubt his innocence. He points out these aren't just empty claims and that his behaviour backs up his assertions. He points to his relationships in verses 4 and 5 just look at the verbs he uses here. The verbs he uses to de describe the associations of the people around him. I do not consort. I hate. I will not sit. When David says, I do not sit, he's not talking about a passive thing. A passive sitting like you're all doing at the moment. It's just a way of resting. Being comfortable. In the wonderful chairs we've got here at Reason Chapel. David's talking about sitting. He's talking about an active thing, a choice. Friendships, partnerships. It's like the House of Commons here. I've got on the slide today. You've probably seen it a lot on the telly recently. When an MP walks in through the doors and sits down in a bench, depending on whether he sits with the government or the opposition or flips between the two, you know what side they're on. It doesn't just just a way of resting while someone else is talking. It's actually an active statement of where you say where you stand on the issue that's being discussed. The idea is your common acquaintances, the people you spend time with, the people whose opinions you value, you listen to, you support, the people who you are friends with, who you hang out with, give an indication of your character and your inner desires. David picks his acquaintances carefully because the company he keeps is important to him and it tells the world of his character. So he doesn't sit with men of falsehood. He's saying he doesn't value those who distort the truth, who lie, who aren't honest, who cheat. He's not talking about people who may have incomplete facts, people who from time to time make a mistake or get carried away sometimes. He's just not talking about people who may misspeak from time to time. Just the wrong words come out and it's misleading. He's talking about people who intentionally take what is true, distort it, and turn it into something that's false in order to mis mislead people and gain an unfair advantage. People who are unrepentant about that behaviour and are proud of it and are well known for doing it. So as evidence for David's integrity, he says he doesn't deal with people like that. He's known for not supporting people who behave like that. He doesn't find any companionship with them. He doesn't want to get polluted in his thoughts by their associations. This isn't coming out from the world. It's not being friends with non-Christians. 
It, some of us grew up in circles sometimes where it was forbidden to associate with people from outside the fellowship. That's not what David's talking about here. This is a righteous contempt for men who know the truth and actively despise it. People that take an active opposition to God's law, not those who are simply ignorant of the truth or damaged or misled themselves, perhaps. And his counterpoint to that, he points to his love for other people who are upright in heart. That's the implication. If you don't sit with men of falsehood, then you do sit with men who are of the truth. There's no middle ground. There's no fence to sit on. It's not just about avoiding evil. It's about actively seeking out good. He doesn't consort with hypocrites whose religion is only an outward show about getting them power and getting people to think they're great. David longs to people whose worship is true, whose worship is sincere. He's not companion of liars, of hypocrites. The opposite is true of him. David loves men of truth who worship God in sincerity. In other words, he loves the people of God. So as we look at the next piece of David evidence, in verse 5, we find that not only does he not consort with the people of falsehood, he actually hates the assembly of evildoers. He'll not sit with the wicked. And that sounds pretty priggish to our ears today. It's that kind of stuff we had that video at the start. Sometimes it's like, look, I'm better than them. You know, they've told you what they've got to say. I'm better than them. But in this most postmodern culture, we're taught to accept everybody, whatever they've done, and not be judgmental. We have that much misused word, intolerance. And in any case, perhaps we think to ourselves, surely we're all evildoers. Paul says in Romans, after all, that we all have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. If I'm an evildoer, what right have I to go pointing a finger at someone else? So let's be certain of what David's talking about here. He's not talking about, as I said, people once in a while have a selfish thought in their hearts, who struggle, who strive against the wickedness within them, the natural, human, fallen, sinful nature. He's not talking about that. He talks about people who blatantly, openly, run out, run after evil, what God has described as wrong. They surrender themselves to what they know is sin and nevertheless go after it. They know it's sin and carry on regardless and ignore God. They act as if it's no importance and there'll be no consequence for their actions. We can see this even in Jesus' life. His example. He was gentle and forgiving to those who are repentant. Even if they'd led lives of evil to the prostitution, extortionate tax collection, whatever. But the Pharisees, the money changers in the temple, those who sought personal advantage and gain out of a position of power, who viewed themselves with pride, he called them whitewashed sepulchres. Pretty too. So David here is talking about that kind of disparity between the idolater, the man who puts his own well-being first and foremost, and the true man of God. This is David's mind. He'll not be a companion to the man of falsehood. He'll also not befriend the wicked. He walks in integrity, he trusts in God, and he shows it by his love for the people of God. But we've got to ask ourselves a question when we go through this psalm. If it, is it David's goal 
to establish how he hates the assembly of the wicked. Is the whole point of this psalm just to show how good he is? Maybe God's, David's saying, look, I walk in integrity, look how I hate the evildoer, and now you owe me, God. You must save me. So as we read on in the psalm, we read how David's delight is really in a very different place. It's not in about earning God's satisfaction. It's about worshipping God. Read in verse 6. six. Oops. Yeah. We read in verse 6, the largest part of the psalm, the whole half of the psalm. The first part is just introduction. The second part is what it's about. It's reserved for the worship of God. David doesn't come to God as his peer, someone who owes him a favour. He comes to God as the only one who's worthy of his adoration. He doesn't come to God around his strength, but he comes to God, as it says in verse 6, around his altar, the altar used for sacrifice. The sacrifice is only necessary because of sin. David is delighting in the resolution of his sin. He's recognizing he's a failure, really, and he isn't perfect and that the altar, the central part of the tabernacle, was only there necessary because that was true, and he wasn't perfect. He comes to God with the people of God. He asks God to vindicate him, not because he's perfect, but he's actually fully aware of his sin. He's appealing to God for his forgiveness, even as he seeks vindication for his actions. You see, he comes with thanksgiving. David's vindication that he's asking for isn't complete at this point. David's still crying out to God for vindication. But he still worships the Lord in thanksgiving. It's not something he keeps to himself. David's religion isn't a private affair of his own private time. He declares his thanksgiving to everybody. He says in verse 7, he declares his thanksgiving to all. He declares his thanksgiving to God aloud. He talks about what God has done for him and he talks about it to everybody. The wonderful deeds of God in David's time that he knows of, of the creation of the world, the exodus of his people, the promise of the Messiah who is to come. David knows the works of God and he delights in them. When David thinks of the things that God has done, he comes to verse 8 and he says, I love the house that where you live. A braggart wouldn't do that. He, he only seeks to bask in God's glory. He recognized God has done wonderful things in his life and in his nation, and so he comes to the house of God, the tabernacle. He comes to the tabernacle to delight himself in the glory of God, to simply be in the presence of the living God. David loved the organized church of his day. The organized church gets a bit of a bashing these days. The scandal of hidden child abuse and, and judgmentalism and ritualism and stuffiness and all those things that modern society just hates and thinks is old-fashioned and doesn't want to have anything to do with and sometimes quite right. Maybe the established church deserves some of the accusations leveled at it. It hasn't been perfect and it's got much to repent of. But still, even in David's day, the priests and the establishment weren't perfect then either. We know of Eli's sons and others who betrayed the trust of their office. Human failing in its operation don't destroy the virtue of the idea. For every failure, there are many more. For the church gets it right. 
And David delights in the corporate worship of God's people, the function, the central point of the church. People come together to worship God according to his precepts. How, how could he not, since he knows everything that God has done for him? In verse 9 and verse 10, he turns to God again. He's not relying on his works. His point is not to say, look at how good I am, but to say, vindicate me because I know that you can. I've come to worship you, O Lord. And he appeals to God here not to sweep him away with the sinners, with the blood see The sinners, the blood thirsty, will certainly be washed away. But David's not a sinner in this sense. It doesn't mean David didn't sin. Of course he did. Well, well, well documented. But it means in, David doesn't fit into a category that the Bible calls sinner. What do I mean by this? A biblical category of a sinner. When the Bible is using the word sinner in this context, it's a category of speaking that those that are not regenerate, those that are not repentant, those that have not been forgiven by the Lord, the opposite of the righteous, the sheep who hear God's voice and follow him. We are righteous as God's people. It doesn't mean we don't ever sin. It just means we're in the category of the ones who have been declared righteous by God because we've been repentant and accepted Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We're not sinless and the people in the biblical category of sinner are not the only ones who sin. We all share the curse of the fall. We all sin and fall short of God's glory. But David here is placing himself outside of the category, a biblical category of sinner. Don't sweep my soul away with the sinners. Don't deal with me like you deal with those who are not saved who are not redeemed by you. They'll be swept away, but please don't let me be swept away with them. And then David, in verse 11, appeals again to God to look to him in his integrity, to redeem him, to be gracious to him. He'll continue to live a blameless life. He'll live honestly before his Saviour. He'll continue to live this way even as he appeals to God for his mercy. Everybody, including David, has to wait for the mercy of God, the grace of God to be established. So David asked the Lord to be gracious to him. If we walk as his people in the light of his unfailing love, verse 12 will be true. David's absolutely confident of it. He looks at his life, he looks at his feet, at the picture of how he lives, and he says he stands on level ground. He stands on level ground where he's not going to fall. He doesn't take credit for himself. He doesn't say, look what I've accomplished, so I'm now, because of that, standing on level ground. He says, I'm standing on here, on level ground, so now, what's going to happen? I will bless the Lord because of where I stand, even while I wait. David, in this psalm, isn't talking about his accomplishments. He's not boasting. He's not speaking of how much better he is than his fellow man. He's simply appealing to God and then worshipping. He knows what God will do to vindicate him. So as we consider this psalm 3,000 years later, we can learn. We can learn that we walk before the Lord in integrity and refrain from hypocrisy. It's not that hard to be a hypocrite. We can fool some Christian people. It's not hard to do. We can even fool our parents for a while. We can fool our spouse for years. We can convince our friends we're living one way and we're actually secretly, privately, on our own, living some way else. But when we live as hypocrites, it means we're living to impress ourselves, perhaps to gain the acceptance of others who we think would be ashamed if they knew the truth. 
We're living for our own pride. But God, God calls each of us to turn to him. He calls each of us to seek his pleasure. Stand in his courts and bask in his glory. He doesn't give his glory to someone else. So when we're busy fooling a man, we're not fooling God. God knows our heart. He knows our mind. Hypocrisy is called a whitewashed tomb by Jesus. It looks wonderful on the outside. On the inside, it's a stinking mess. So if you look at this psalm and apply God's principle new covenant relationship we have with God, we're to live for Christ in the light of the supreme example of his steadfast love. In his incarnation, in his crucifixion, we're to stand in the presence of his people and praise him because of his resurrection. We're to talk aloud of the thankfulness that God wants in our hearts, that out of the overflow of our hearts our mouths will speak. Not only the outside should be beautiful, but also the inside is beautiful and it spills out. We walk before the Lord in integrity and we refrain from hypocrisy. And then the, finally, the second thing we're called to in this psalm is to delight ourselves in the worship of God. It's ever, ever so easy, isn't it, not to delight in the worship of God. Many things that come up that would interfere, maybe a hobby, the TV, work, me time, family, any number of distractions. But David in the face of seeking God's vindication, sees the utter importance of joining with God's people in his house around the altar. And David, when he comes to God, he delights in the corporate worship of God's people. And if David could take delight in the worship of God's people, how much more should we who've seen the Messiah? David was waiting for the Messiah. We've seen him. We've seen the obliteration of the altar that David walked around. We've seen Christ come. We've seen the removal of the need for sacrifice because the perfect sacrifice has come. So how much time can we muster up each week to respond to the glorious gift that God has given? Worship defines the response of God's people because it demonstrates our understanding of God's power and it demonstrates our understanding of God's mercy. His power is established in the fact that he can say a word and everything comes into being. He takes rebellious, dead, sinful people and takes their heart of stone and gives them a new heart, a beating heart, a heart to seek the Lord's favour, to come to worship to him. And he does it at such great cost to himself. He sends his own son to suffer in our place. So how much time can we muster up in a week when we come face to face with the power and mercy and grace of God? So David's, David's appeal for vindication isn't a bragging exercise. He's not trying to show how much better he is than people do it. He's coming to God in worship. Worship is what is central to David in this psalm. David looks at his own heart, so he knows there's sin in his heart, he knows he's gone astray, he knows that his salvation and his vindication rests solely in the hands of God's grace, and so he appeals to him. Appeals to, God to see, appeals to God to secretly keep him from being swept away. And even as he makes this appeal, he stands on level ground. He stands secure. He stands secure because the steadfast, unfailing love of God makes him secure. And there's only one 
possible response for him to that. To stand in the presence of God and bless the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge we stand before you as sinful men and women. We're unworthy of your presence. Yet we stand here nevertheless knowing we're judged righteous because of the sacrifice of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We praise you and worship you today for your greatness and for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to close the meeting now. Listening to the words of Psalm 26 again. This time perhaps a little bit more like it was meant to be heard in music as a song. And as we do so, let's just wonder at the example of David and stand beside him in worship of our wonderful Lord and Saviour.